Hey, welcome back to the Chatty Nights Podcast. Today, we are going to do an interview with me. So I'm not going to do the interview. I'm joined today again by my friend, Jonah, who is very excited and ready to do this. His face right now is not saying excited, but I know him too well. If you haven't listened to the other episodes or have not seen on the YouTube, I have been doing a Let's Play of a game called Calico, which is basically about stealing cats, and we're hopefully going to be posting a Fable Let's Play today. Uh, We'll see what happens after this interview. Jonah, is there anything that you got to say before we uh, get into this? Not really. All right. So Jonah's going to be asking questions here. I'm going to be answering them. Pretty simple idea. Uh, Jonah, take it away. Okay. Uh, what is your first legal name, birth, and age currently? So my first legal name is Cody. Uh, I was born September 29th, 2000, which puts me at 20 years old. Uh, what is the platform, and what do you create on the platform? Right now, currently, I am using YouTube and Spotify. Uh, I've been using it for podcasts, which run about an hour long. And on the YouTube side of things, I've also been using it to make Let's Plays, uh, where I just basically play different games and kind of record myself talking about them. Uh, when did you start this content, and what's what's your overall goal with it? Uh, so far, uh, since I've started... It's been a month from what I've seen. Uh, It's been a month since the first post. And hopefully the goal is... uh, Short term right now, the goal is to hopefully reach... I would say probably like 50 total subscribers uh, to both the Spotify and YouTube. Uh, But a longer term goal is to, at the end of the year possibly get up to you know the hundreds range maybe like 700 800 at the time of this interview what's your current view count and support so right now on the spotify side of things i have around 15 followers on there uh there's quite a few downloads i think last time i checked it there was like 30 downloads and on the youtube side of things I have five subscribers on there, um, and so far, uh, I've only had four videos, and each one, I believe, has a like at this point, which is very small, but it is something to be pretty happy about, that they're even having clicks on them. Um, it takes a lot of like effort. So what, what has motivated you to pursue this? When I was growing up, there we all kind of go through uh, conflictions of what we want to do when we eventually get older. And honestly, the, in the situations that I grew up in, I should be learning how to drive an 18-wheeler right now, but from watching and kind of participating on the internet as it grew into what it is today, 
Um, you know, I I grew up in the time that YouTube sort of started taking off and that just the internet as a whole started to really just kind of blow up into different things. It kind of pushed me to want to do a creator, you know, content creator kind of thing. And there's there's people that I watch, you know, like the big names like Markiplier. Uh, for a long time, it was Game Grumps. Uh, they were very influential because I watched them at such a young age. You know, I, I started watching them when it was it was Aaron and Dan. No, Aaron and uh, JonTron. And I started watching JonTron when he was first taking off. And seeing the response and how they sort of entertained me and made me feel really kind of pushed me in the direction of wanting to pass that along. Since you're talking about when you were younger, if we went back in time to like walk in your shoes, what kind of things would we experience and feel? Um, when I was younger, obviously I, w I was kind of stupid, but I was a very open kid. Uh, there wasn't a lot that you couldn't get me to do in the terms of like being social. I definitely, I was kind of one of them kids that always had another kid coming to their house to ask if they come out to play, stuff like that. So I was, I was pretty fun and a lot of it was just, you know, happy, dumb times. And I had a really, really big imagination and it, it kind of got me in trouble a couple times. There was... You know, there was um, there was a lot of times where, as a kid, I thought I knew everything, especially as I kept growing up. And one of those times really shines when I went and my grandfather had a old-style razor. And I, I don't know why I thought it was a comb, but I really thought it was a comb. So, like, I, I tried using it as a comb. That That's the kind of things that, like... Just not like an over, overly cocky kind of kid, but definitely one that thought he knew what he was doing. And now even still today, kind of thinks that he knows what he's got going on and, and what he thinks is right is right. But, you know, it in a couple words to sum up what 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 me growing up was like was just kind of happy, imaginative and you know i know it all almost i really think everybody has that time where they go through and they think that they're right about everything right i mean that's fair you know uh do you think your family will support your choices about like youtube and spotify my grandmother is very supportive uh growing up she never really pushed me in any direction she was more of just somebody that I went and talked to and she kind of either, you know, agreed or she offered up suggestions. So in a sense, if I had gone up to her and told her that I wanted to be a firefighter or I wanted to be a police officer, she would never directly, you know, disagree or tell me no. She would always just 
make me think about what or why I wanted to do that. And that's just, my grandmother's raised a lot of children. And so I think she just really knows, you know, how to handle that sort of situation. And my father is very, he's very supportive, but he's definitely more like my grandfather. And if he doesn't understand something, then he will tend to be more angry about it and, you know, kind of not understand why somebody would do that. And that, I've kind of grown used to it. You know, I've thrown ideas at them before, and it's it's hit the wall before, and, and you know, it's hard. But at the same time, since my grandma's been there, it, it kind of balances itself out. And then my brother, I don't really get a chance to talk to him about these things. So anytime that I really have brought it up, he's just been all for it. And he just kind of, he himself really didn't have a dream of his own. So I feel like he just, he would accept anything that I would do. And my sister being the free spirit that she is really, I mean, I I could be doing anything right now and she'd probably support it. What, What does your father do for work? What was or is his dream? So he is a truck driver and he has been truck driving since the age of 10. Uh, Back then, uh, his father, my grandfather, was a truck driver who was also truck driving at a very young age. And that sort of was his dream. And that just kind of... He lives doing his dream, but at the same time, I think he has an understanding that it's not it's not a dream that's getting him to be a millionaire or anything, and it's not something fabulous or fantastic. But if you were to ask him if he was happy, he'd definitely tell you that he was. And ever since he was 10 driving a truck, he's basically lived by the fact that he's going to die in that truck, whatever truck it is at that time. And that, like, I, I mean, my grandfather was a truck driver and my great-grandfather was a truck driver. So it just kind of went down the line and it sort of stopped at my dad because he really pushed to us kids that truck driving wasn't a way for us to live and it wasn't something that he wanted to see us live in. Following up with that, what what as a whole is your family's motivations, and are they related to your father's, or do each of them have different ideas? So, like I said, uh, my great-grandfather and my grandfather were truck drivers. My great-grandfather was in the military. Uh, he served during the Vietnam War in the Air Force, and my grandfather also served in the military. Uh, my dad didn't, and so that, the sort of male line of people were all kind of held the same dream, the same idea. It was kind of serve in the military and then be a truck driver. But when it came to us kids and my grandmother, my grandmother's dream, I'm still not necessarily sure of in actuality because 
I when she was younger, she became a hairdresser, and that got her all the way up to running a college for hairdressing. But at some point along the line, she stopped doing that, and she switched to being a uh, an Alzheimer's patient worker in a home. Uh, and I don't know, you know, how she really got to that point or why she went to that point. And I don't know if that's where she wanted to end. You know, I always kind of figured that she still wanted to be a hairdresser with how much she still does for hairdressing. But I've never really sat down and talked to her about it. My brother, as I was saying, as far as I know, never really truly had something to work for. And so I think that my great-grandfather kind of left an impression on him and my grandfather. And I think that's why he joined the military himself. He uh, serves the Air Force and has been for the past 10 years now. And I don't think he's going to leave that. You know, it's something that he enjoys and is getting him through. My sister just wants to travel the country. And that's kind of really all it is, I think. So as a whole, I think it for them, everything still kind of stems from my father. You know, the traveling, the serving and everything, it, it kind of all connects in a way. And I, I came out to be, I guess, the black sheep of the family with entertainment. Something completely different from traveling, delivering, and serving. Still having this mix of dynamics in your house, how, how did it affect you? Growing up, there's not a whole lot you can do as a young kid for entertainment unless your family as a whole either has a background in it already or is trying to give you one. And we really didn't live in the uh, richest conditions. We weren't, you know, up there. I wouldn't even say we were lower middle class. I think we were just mostly high, you know, low class, poor. So growing up, it really, there was a lot of opportunities for me to lead myself astray from, you know, performing and acting. But once I hit middle or high school, it, it kind of solidified itself because there's nothing, and I don't blame them, my family or anything, because there's nothing they could really do to lead me in the direction that I wanted to go just because of our situation and our circumstances. Well, how have all your friends reacted to the podcasts and stuff? So far, it's been pretty positive. When I first started, <laughs> when I first started, I kind of rushed in because I didn't want to hold myself back at all or have any doubts about it. And I immediately rushed to one of my best friends and his name is Josh. And he is just somebody that I could put a gun in his hand and trust until the end of days. And I kind of just asked him the simple question of, do you think I can do a podcast? 
and he was basically a hundred percent with it. And then after the first episode, he was he was pretty much all there. And obviously, it goes to show that you, Jonah, are here with the podcast now. There's been three episodes with you in it, uh, and one with some of my other friends. So I'd say so far they've received and welcomed the idea of me chasing this. And I would say that as we go along, we'll continue to see that kind of support regardless. Kind of going back a little bit. uh, In high school, what was your favorite subject and sport? In high school, my favorite subject was probably, I would say English just as a whole. There was a little bit of a time in high school where I just enjoyed writing and reading because I thought that maybe I would become a a writer. You know, I'd release some kind of book or something. But, I mean, English for me is just an easy class. I didn't really have a favorite sport, but I have always enjoyed tennis. I, I don't know anything about it, and I barely know how to play it, but I really do enjoy tennis. But we we didn't have a tennis team. We only had the standard wrestling and football, which kind of sucked, but, you know. Don't forget, they did just get a soccer team, too. Soccer is fun as well. I played soccer in, like, elementary and I liked it, but I was bad at it. But tennis, tennis was just the shit for me. Uh, in high school, uh, how were you considered, and how did people really treat you in high school? Starting out in high school, freshman year, I would say our school atmosphere as a whole was relatively good. You know, there was some back and forth kind of bullshit going around. But me personally, I really didn't experience a whole lot. Mostly because I was, again, really open to a lot of people. At least, you know, at face value. I didn't directly, you know, turn down people just to to be a dick. I always gave everybody a chance pretty much. And, you know, it, it helped a lot coming from middle school knowing you know, most of the, most of your grade knowing them, I had already established a pretty good friend group and just kind of having a outward nature allowed me to establish more, uh, amongst the older crowd, you know, the other grades, which is how I met a lot more of my friends. So, you know, as a whole being treated, it, it was fairly decent. A lot of people I feel looked at me as not necessarily the class clown, but definitely the guy that if you talk to for a while, it would make you laugh. Uh, since since you're already like pretty nice in high school, did and I know you like to perform. Did you always feel that you needed to perform for others, or was it a turning point that made you like in your life that made you feel this way? So, the need to perform for others is kind of, I, I mean, it it's there, you know. It, the people pleaser in me is definitely heavily there. It's always just kind of been 
uh, uh, fun thing, I guess, to say for me to put smile on people's faces. But it was definitely, there's definitely a point while I was doing improv and while I was kind of growing with it when I kind of realized that I was good at it, not to toot my own horn, but I kind of realized that people actually enjoyed what I was doing and it wasn't just people that I knew. It wasn't family members or anything. So that was kind of the point when I, when I started doing speech and improv, that was kind of the turning point, especially when I had my speech coach uh, at that time, when I first started, his name was Mr. Connor. Uh, when I had him, you know, kind of starting to actually give back positive feedback, which sounds bad, but when I actually started improving and you know, he was seeing that and recognizing it. That was kind of the point where I knew that I'd finally started getting somewhere with it. During improv, what sort of challenges did you face? So, there's normal challenges in improv, and obviously a lot of those are whether or not you're willing to out yourself and put yourself in a situation where you look like an idiot in front of a crowd of people you don't know. And and that's just like a a no brainer challenge. But some of the other things that was pretty challenging for me was learning how to work with other people that didn't have that kind of turn off, don't care switch in their mind and still worried about what people saw them as even during a performance. So that was probably one of the biggest challenges that I faced, but one of the other things was me getting over the fact that I didn't, that, you know, every skit wasn't perfect, and even if it wasn't perfect, that doesn't mean it was bad. A lot of the times I really doubted myself after a performance because I would read the crowd a lot, and if the crowd wasn't you know, active or as active to my liking, I really thought that I just performed badly and that I thought I'd brought down other people. But over time, I kind of got over, you know, that sort of fear or that sort of mindset. And I just kind of grown from it. How successful were you in improv? So for four years, I did every four, every year, I did group and individual improv, and on an average, every year I went to state, which is the second tier in speech. You go to districts where you have one judge, and then you go to state where you have three judges. Districts can be considered pretty easy, because if you know how that judge reacts to certain things, or you know what that judge likes for comedy then you can pretty much cheese it and just have an easy time. But state is the three judges, you know, it it gets a lot harder. And it's your last opportunity to get into Allstate. And Allstate-wise, I only truly Allstated once, and that was for individual improv on my senior year. But 
the ratings for state across the board, I guess, would average out to about a one or two. And so that, it, it was relatively good. I didn't, you know, break any records or anything with my performances, but I definitely did make a little name of myself. Yes, you were definitely successful. Uh, did your success uh, translate into, like, popularity among, like, other districts? So, I would say that it kind of did. Not just the performances itself. When going to contest and when doing, waiting to perform and stuff like that, I was very open to kind of floating around and just making different little scenes of myself and just kind of making people laugh. It was a good way to kind of meet a lot of different people, and it was a good opportunity. Um, I remember freshman year, my first group group thing, I, uh, me and one of my partners went around, and I think we we pretty much talked to almost every single person in that place. Uh, and it just kind of solidified not my name necessarily, but my image and who I was within kind of the community of speech. And it led to me getting recognized a couple of times, which was really cool. You know, there was one time in junior year when I was at our local park and I even had a group of kids come up to me and ask me if I was who I was. And, and obviously I said yes. And then we had a, a talk for a little bit and then they went away. So I guess yeah, I kind of, you know, in a positive way, my name was kind of spread around. There was some negatives to it. Unfortunately, within a crowd of people, there's always just narcissistic assholes, I guess to say. And there was times where my name was thrown around in the dirt and I have heard comments before, but I kind of just blew it off because I didn't even know them. So it really didn't affect me that much and they were just kind of losers anyways. What would you say are your biggest strengths and weaknesses in improv skits? In a skit... One of my biggest strengths is easily being the star. Uh, if we broke it down to roles in an improv, I definitely feel like there's always a background role, supporting characters, and then your star. And your star is the person that drives along that skit and pushes the comedy through. And that was something that undoubtedly I was really good at. I wasn't afraid to get out there. I wasn't afraid to use my body in whatever way needed. And I wasn't afraid to commit to an act. One of the biggest weaknesses for me was planning. Since I have a very creative and imaginative mind, it's a lot easier for me to go into a situation without a plan than it is for me to go into something with a plan. And I take that throughout my life a lot. Um, I mean, a, a stupid example would be gro going grocery shopping. A lot of people make lists, but if I sat and I made a list, it'd probably take me three days. But when I go in there, I just go in there and I, I just, you know, wing it. 
and I end up having food for a month just fine. So you can you can kind of take that example and apply it to most things and that that's just kind of how I live my life. But it definitely is a weakness because a lot of people don't live like that and I don't blame them because it, it it is a little reckless. Another big weakness of mine is just not being able to bring out people that don't want to be brought out in a skit. Basically saying, if you pair me with somebody that's bad, I don't have the ability to somehow push them to do better mid-skit. It's kind of it's kind of hard to like explain, but I've definitely seen some of the people that I work with do it when they get paired up with just bad actors. And it's it's honestly something that I envy them for because they really know how to save skits, you know. They really just kind of pull that person out even when they don't want to be and they just kind of push them along so much that it it just rounds it out to be, you know, something pretty good. Uh, what was the funniest or best performance that you've ever done for improv? Performance-wise, for an actual performance while a judge was watching, the second year for improv, it was individual improv, and the prompt was falling into a bowl of M&M's, uh, this performance had a little bit of a backstory to it, and which made it really good. There was a lot of uh, people that I knew in that room, and a lot of people knew that backstory. So basically, this prompt was a prompt that I had practiced beforehand. And the one that I had practiced beforehand wasn't... I wouldn't say that it was a bad practice, but it was definitely not one that I could perform just because of the jokes that I made. So going into contest, you don't think that you'll ever get a prompt that you've practiced, but I did. And when I performed that, I had turned it completely, I, I turned it completely different from what I had practiced it. When you would think that I would just try and redo what I had already done. I, I completely remade it and it just, if I could redo the scene like I did it that day, I, I would I would probably become famous for just how raw and how good it was when it was first performed. It was to a point where the audience couldn't even see me, but they were still losing their minds over it. And, and they couldn't see me because I was laying on the floor in front of the judge's feet and she was still going nuts. I mean, it was it's something that I'm really proud of to remember. And I still have the sheet where the judge had wrote it and wrote on her commentary. And all of the commentary for it was positive. And everybody walked out of that room happier and and just had a very good time. And I, I would say that was my best performance. Outside of that, there was a individual practice where the prompt was something along the lines of you sneeze at the wrong time. And 
I had actually tried to recreate that for some middle schoolers at the time. It, it was still pretty funny, but the premise of that was just kind of like an old lady sneezing on a bomb. So during pre- during practice, that would be one of the best performances, but during an actual performance, it was falling into a bowl of M&M's. Okay, uh... Was speech always a smooth and fun ride, or was there some drama and arguments during that that made it challenging? Starting off freshman year, it was relatively easy. Uh, The hardest thing was just, you know, I guess, putting ourselves out there for the first time. But relatively, speech as a whole was pretty smooth. The biggest things that were kind of an issue was favoritism. One of the other forms of uh, acting that I always wanted to do was musical theater. But at that time, the coach that was coaching it was just very particular on who he wanted to see perform. And so that kind of held me back. And it, it was kind of disheartening because I've always loved singing myself. And I wanted a shot at it, and I wanted to try and get better with it. But because I wasn't one of those people that he liked, I didn't have that chance. It never really escalated because, unfortunately, I kind of settled with the fact that I wasn't just gonna—I wasn't gonna be able to get into musical theater. So it just kind of—it just kind of faded out as a possibility and I just focused on improv the only other kind of rough thing in speech for me was that Mr. Connor had a very different way of pushing me to get better and explaining it loud out loud sounds kind of like a harsh way of doing it but he really he really focused on putting me in my place and not letting me create a god complex that was out of control you know if i was complimenting myself on something he would always make sure that he you know corrected me and told me what i still needed to work on and i really tried to make him like a best friend and he really tried to kind of push me back but let me get ahead sometimes. So it was it was a challenge and it was I guess drama in a way, but at the same time it was a great way to to uh grow from it. Um I hear you're gonna be quitting your job soon. Do you have a backup plan or what are you gonna do in the meantime? So right now I work at a retail store and I will be quitting it. Unfortunately, I've been working since I was 16. And the job itself just isn't... I I, I just can't deal with it anymore. It's not the people that I work with. It's the people that come in. You know, at first, you would think that helping people day in and day out would be something that I would like doing. And, And it kind of was. It was kind of fun getting to know different customers and getting to chat with them. But we, uh, about two years ago, I think a year ago, we moved to a bigger building. 
You know, there was a whole summer that I, I spent inside that building setting it up 12 hour days every day a week. And it was just, it, it just kind of wore me out. And when you get a bigger, bigger building, for some reason, that just means the customers become bigger assholes. So that's what kind of pushed me to start, you know, looking for other options. If everything was going according to plan and everything was, I was just getting lucky left and right, I wouldn't be quitting and finding another job. But unfortunately, I am looking for another job still. I do have a plan to hopefully get a job that is a little better time-wise so I can put more time into what I actually want to do. I will say that in the four years that I've worked at this retail store, there's been a lot of fun times. There's been a lot of bullshit times. And in all, it was a good experience, but it's just kind of time for me to move on from it. Since you're kind of doing more of your content creation, what are some challenges you are you face with content creation in your podcasts? One of the biggest things is funding. Um, Money-wise, I'm doing all right, but there's a lot of things that you have to get before you can even start doing anything. You know, the PC is one thing, the microphone is the next, and, and it all just adds up. But I feel like at this point, the biggest thing is learning new things and figuring out what and how to grow from where I'm at and how to get better with every every release. Um, there's no, there's never, there's a lot of tutorials out there on how to like edit videos and stuff like that, but it's never that easy to just sit there and and watch like a five hour long video to learn how to use obs studio you know it's a lot easier to just kind of dive in and get in there which is still a challenge in itself and being this is my first time owning my own complete pc it's been kind of a challenge to learn how it runs and you know how to run it you know i i'm not like completely idiotic to what you know a pc is or how it goes but i'm definitely not very smart in it another challenge is just finding time to actually be able to sit down and then committing to that and completely you know spending an hour to two hours working on one thing do you feel like you have a fighting chance in this line of work or is there or is it a more of a pastime for the moment? At this point in time, where the internet's at, it seems like everybody's trying to become a content creator. But I feel like that stems from more people wanting a way to sit at home and kind of play video games all day. I don't want to say that it speaks for... Every person out there, you know, online making content, but there definitely is a portion of people just kind of striving for that kind of perfect goal, you know, that kind of idea of where they can go post a video 
make a million dollars and then sit at home and not have to worry about anything. I feel like if you go into it with that kind of mindset, then no, there isn't a chance and you should probably just give up. But if you're going into it with the mindset that you want to make it a career, you want to put more work into it than necessary, you want to dedicate you know, days, hours, whatever it takes, then I feel like there definitely is a chance out there. I feel like people, you know, human to human can recognize passion. And when you are just passionate about something, it draws people in a lot easier. And, you know, I've been asked why, you know, why try this when there's already so many big names out there. But yet, you know, in a couple months, there's going to be another big name out there. So the industry itself is just kind of like a revolving door. You know, people are coming and going. People are making mistakes and being forgotten about. People are doing huge things. And there's always, you know, people that are just automatically known, you know. Everybody on the internet knows the name of PewDiePie. And he's been at this... He, he's been doing this since, I think, 2009. You know, so there's definitely... There's definitely a chance, and I definitely don't think I'll ever just make it a pastime. It's either going to be I keep working or I give up on it. I see that you have Patreon, but you really haven't posted anything on it yet. What's the reason for that? So, being that I'm a month in, I thought it was a good idea to start right away having a Patreon. But I kind of realize now that it was a little bit of a bad idea. My goal is to get that more content and get that going but right now the content for it just isn't there yet uh a lot of that's hopefully gonna be you know bloopers um drunk podcasts stuff like that and i just haven't been able to dedicate that time yet it's something that i will still keep up and hope that you know people start seeing it and hopefully putting money into it not in like a i want to do this full-time way but more as in like they want to see i want them to have that curiosity to see what i put on there so hopefully within the next couple months i'm able to get some good content on there that is only patreon and we'll see kind of what responses i can get to it get from it and what kind of fan base I can get from it. In a few months, uh, where do you plan to be? So as I was saying, uh, hopefully in a few months, most likely by September, I hope that we can have kind of a combined goal of 50 followers on both YouTube and Spotify. Uh, another good goal would be to have more people following the Twitter so that I can get more support there and get more shares there. Uh, I also I also have a Discord server, and I'm really hoping that I can start getting people into that. That way I can meet new people and start making connections and just kind of starting starting to make internet friends. So in a few months, that's what we're kind of seeing. We're kind of seeing like... You know, 50 followers, subscribers, whatever you want to say. 
some people in the Discord, and some people on the Twitter. And, you know, show a little love to the Instagram. I've also started posting TikToks, and, you know, we'll see what happens with that. TikTok's very finicky, so I don't want to set a goal for that at all. It's just kind of there to see what happens with it. Is there anything else you want to say before the end of the podcast? Um, I think this is a pretty good interview. I hope this gives people a little bit of insight, you know, and hopefully it motivates them to share my content more and push more people to watch and listen. In end, if they can take anything away, you know, hopefully it's that they can spread my name, even if it's just telling somebody. The biggest way that somebody can support a creator is by sharing. You know, if you have 400 people on Facebook and you make one post, that's 400 eyes that have seen that. And that's 400 possibilities for somebody to share it to their 400 friends. And at the end of the day, putting that much effort is like minuscule. So hopefully they can take away from this interview and hopefully, you know, they kind of get a little closer with me and do a little bonding, not in a weird way. And, uh, you know, hopefully they enjoyed it as well. That's pretty much it for today, I think. I think that does kind of put us towards the end here. Uh, do you want to do you want to do the little end card? Do you want to? Oh, man. Well, <laughs> this is your podcast. Thank you for the interview. You've been wonderful reading the questions. You di- You barely didn't even mess up, you know. I didn't mess up at all. I don't know what you mean. Yeah. Listen, if you enjoyed this and you want to see more content, make sure to check out the YouTube, the Spotify, the Twitter, and the Instagram. Twitter and Instagram is nightcj 64 the YouTube is the Chatty Night. Like I said, there is Let's Plays, uh, and there will be more Let's Plays, Let's Plays as the days go on. So if you're interested, check it out. Otherwise, thank you for watching, listening, and have a good day. <laughs>